Hey guys, welcome back to another Flashback Friday with the Serial Spirits Podcast. We're diving deep into the archives this week and bringing you an episode we did a year and a half ago. We interviewed Todd Matthews about a case he had been working on. Guys, this is a pretty interesting episode. We talk about a documentary that he was involved with. So guys, sit back, relax, and enjoy this Flashback Friday. On any given day, thousands of missing person cases are on file with law enforcement agencies across America. More than 600,000 individuals go missing in the United States every year. Tens of thousands of these cases become cold cases, where an individual remains missing for more than 12 months. Every year, American law enforcement recovers 4,400 unidentified bodies and about 1,000 remain cold cases. The criminal justice community works hard to resolve these cases and never forgets their human element. But the sheer volume of missing and unidentified persons cases has become one of the greatest challenges that agencies face. To respond to this, NIJ launched NamUs in 2007. NamUs was created as a clearinghouse for missing, unidentified, and unclaimed persons cases. The system can be used by law enforcement officers, medical examiners, coroners, and families. Users can securely inform, share, search, and hopefully come to resolution. NamUs also includes free forensic services, training, and technical assistance to support the criminal justice community working to resolve these cases. NIJ funds all of these services so they're available free of charge to a user. Since NIJ established NamUs in 2007, more than 45,000 cases have been reported to the system and more than 16,000 have been resolved. We know we can do better. NamUs is a powerful tool for criminal justice agencies and families as they work to resolve cases. By bringing together people, information, forensic science, and technology, NamUs helps solve cold cases across the country and bring resolution to the families and other loved ones most impacted by these cases. The Defendant's Commission of these four murders over a 10-day period is one of the worst killing sprees in the history of this state. Skin them sometimes, uh, slit them, slit them all the way open. Uh. I'm here looking for the spirits of anybody that still remains. I have a device in my hand. If you would like to talk to it, please come forward. Tell me your story. Maybe I should have killed four or five hundred people. Then I would have felt better. Then when I felt like I really offered society something. You are listening to Serial Spirits, the podcast. Welcome to another episode of Serial Spirits, the podcast. It's me, your host, Brendan Shea, and as always, the lovely, the wonderful... Annie Weaves. What's up, Shea Bay? What's going on? It's 2019. We're recording our first episode in the new year. 
We know we had an episode drop two weeks ago, and you know, it was obviously after the new year, and it was a dandy of a story, wasn't it? It was very serious. It was very not controversial but it was it was a serious episode for both of us to do because you know we we wanted to give the respect and dignity to some of these victims and uh we delved deep into it and and i think we covered a lot in that episode well if you're talking about the cropsy staten island boogeyman show then yeah we absolutely did we kind of deviated from our usual banter and took a little more serious turn because the sad fact about this is that four of those five kids that we talked about have never been located. And there's still one, you know, technically unsolved murder of a little girl who was related to your family. And so I think it was necessary to take a more serious turn with that episode. 100% agreed. But this week, we uh, actually, I'll, I'll let you give the little, you know, the, how we figured out this story, what we were going to do with this story, but... It was very interesting. It was our New Year's Eve. We're sitting there watching murder documentaries, and we came up with the idea for this show. The, the next show, you know, we had a whole list of shows we were going to, like, go down, do a rundown of, and this one just popped in there out of nowhere. So, uh, happy 2019 from Serial Spirits, and let's get right into this episode because we have a special interview that we did with two people from this documentary. So I'll let you, you know, kind of talk a little bit about it, Weebs. So like Shay said, this is what happens when we try to plan our shit in advance. It never goes the way we think it's going never. to. Never. Never does. So we are, it's uh, New Year's Eve. Shay and I are in our usual spot. We are propped up on the couch. I have a bottle of wine. He's got a six pack of PBR. And we're going to ring in the new year with true crime documentaries. Happy New Year, right? That's it's just typical for us. So we sit down and we're on Amazon Prime and we stumble upon this documentary that we have never seen before. And it grabs me instantly because the intro says it takes place in Harlan County, Kentucky. Now, so for those of you who do not know me very well, I am from Southern West Virginia, but my family has ties to Harlan County, Kentucky. And so I tell Shay, let's try this. Uh, The documentary is called The Dead Unknown. You can find it on Amazon Prime. And if you Google it, it also comes up on uh, some different crime uh, series websites. It's absolutely amazing. The entire series lasts just about the length of a movie. So if you guys have, you know, an hour and a half to sit down and watch this, watch The Dead Unknown. It is a beautifully shot Um, independent documentary about a case that occurred in 1969 that they called the Mountain Jane Doe. And so as we're watching this, I know that I want to get in touch with the people who are part of this because these people are not, um, they're not cops. They're not detectives. They were private investigators who invested years of their life into identifying who this woman was. They weren't even private investigators. They were just normal, everyday people. No, I didn't mean, I mean, like, they they just investigated on on their own free will. And so I look them up on Facebook. I connect with Darla Jackson and Todd Matthews, who you will hear in just a few minutes, they were kind enough to sit down and do an interview with us. This entire series revolves around Darla and Todd's efforts to identify 
who Mountain Jane Doe was, who was murdered in Harlan County, Kentucky in 1969, to find out who killed her and to return her remains to the rightful owner. And it's an absolutely amazing story. And once you listen to this interview with Darla and Todd, you will realize how passionate they are about this. And that's one thing that really struck home is that they don't do this because they get paid a lot of money to do it. They don't do it for the fame. They did it because they were trying to help these people and continue to do it for that reason. And that's where people get my respect. We both have done a lot of work with saving history, with bringing things to the forefront that people forget about all the time. And passion that these two had uh, for this case, and especially Todd Matthews for you know the cases that he does all around the country, trying to find these unidentified murder victims. It's an incredible feat, and he has uh, you know helped families identify their loved ones. Uh, on numerous occasions. So let's get right into this interview. We did it via Skype. Uh, Darla had a hard time because she was in the hills and the Skype kept cutting out. So you will hear her through Todd Matthews Skype via speakerphone. So we did our best to, to bring her volume up so you can understand. But it's a very incredible interview and I'm so happy that these two took the time to uh, sit down with us and talk about what they are very passionate about. All right, so tonight on Serial Spirits, we would like to welcome from the Amazon documentary, The Dead Unknown, Darla Jackson and Todd Matthews. Guys, thank you so much for being a part of Serial Spirits. How are you guys? Great, thank you. I'm good. It's not a problem at all. No, absolutely. (laughs) So Shay and I sat down and watched this docuseries, and about 10 minutes into it, I knew that I wanted to be able to talk with you guys, not just because the the documentary it's the documentary itself. I have to say this: if you have access to Amazon Prime, you guys get on there and watch this series. It is a beautifully shot, uh, uh, independent documentary, and I am from the well, not far from Harlan County, Kentucky. And Todd, I think I mentioned this to you when we spoke through Facebook Messenger. Um, You know, after talking with my mom, I have ties to some of those families in the area that we will talk about later. So this one kind of really hit close to home. And I knew that we had to get a little more information. So we'll start with each of you individually. Darla, can you tell us kind of what your background is and how you were involved with the Harlan County Jane Doe? Um, Well, I am a native of Harlan County. I was born and raised there. And um, actually, I guess an interest was formed during my childhood. But then um, an intense interest occurred later in life when I was uh, a young adult, and uh, I was reminded of, of the incident that had happened actually the year I was born in 1969. And so it really just kind of developed from there. It's one of these things, you always hear the story, you know what's going on, and so it just piques your interest. So, Todd, you are not from Kentucky. So can you tell us how you got involved with the Harlan County Jane Doe case? 
Well, if, if anybody knows the story and you've saw the dead unknown, and you don't always have to watch it on Amazon. You can Google it and find it on their website, Center for Investigative Reporting. But, uh, of course, I've worked on Tent Girl, and that was a Jane Doe from 1968 in Scott County, Kentucky, my wife's hometown. I met her here in Livingston after they moved here. I don't want to give away too much of the documentary film, but uh, that was the case where that Jane Doe was identified. I was able to find her family looking for her. Darla referenced that actual action in her book, and it got my attention. Uh, so I made contact with Darla because I didn't know of their Jane Doe, even though I had a list of all other John and Jane Doe's in Kentucky from like 1970 onward that I was working on. I didn't know of the Harlan County Jane Doe until she brought it to my attention through her book. And Darla, the book that he's referring to is a book that is actually, you know, right up our alley. It's called Harlan County Haunts, right? Yes. Awesome. So you guys joined up in looking into the story of this woman who was just, let's say, um, she was, you knew that she passed in 1969. She was a Jane Doe. How did they... How was she found? Tell us a little bit about the story of Harlan County Jane Doe. Um, in June of 1969, um, this young woman was found on Pine Mountain in a place uh, called Little Shepherd Trail. It's a very isolated area. And um, she was found stabbed to She was found murdered. And um, an investigation proved very quickly that no one knew who she was. And then, of course, if no one knew who she was, then no one knew of her killer as well. So this area, talk a little bit about the area that she was found in. For you guys who are not familiar with this area in Kentucky, this is coal country. This is some very remote, mountainous area so do you think that had anything any part to play with um the difficulty that they had finding her or do they even know how long her body was there before it was discovered um it can only be estimated nobody really knows for sure but um at the time it was determined that approximately three weeks uh she had been there about three weeks, and, you know, weather and, and other factors can, um, you know, affect that pretty, you know, pretty significantly. So I think safely between two and four weeks would be, you know, uh, an estimate of how long she was there. And as far as the area, um, this, it, this area, even today, is very, very remote. And... Um, that exact place where she was found, even the roads aren't even paved yet. So this is on a mountain in an extremely remote area. And I can tell you guys, like I said before, I, I have some family ties to this area. And in speaking with my mom and stories that I heard about my grandfather or that my grandfather told about his family that came from uh, Harlan County and Johnson County, I hate to say, but it wasn't uncommon for people to kind of go missing during this era, the 1940s, 50s, 60s. Um, and before that, obviously, this area is very remote. 
there's very little communication between people. You know, phones were sparse. They were few and far between. You didn't have anything like social media to keep everyone together. And so it wasn't, I hate to say, unheard of for people to just kind of go missing. In all honesty, my great-grandfather was one of them. I heard a story after watching this documentary and talking with my mom that my great-grandfather was not a great man. He kind of disappeared on the family. And it was just one of those situations that if people didn't want to be found, they didn't have to be. And they could disappear very easily. It wasn't investigated like it is today. And so it was just kind of never known what happened to some of these people. So if you're hearing this and you think, oh my God, how do people just disappear in that nature? Trust me, in this area and that time period, it was totally possible. They find this young woman's body in a very remote area in Kentucky. The man that found her body, did he know anything? Did he claim to know this woman or was he just there uh, kind of out of happenstance? Um, it, it is said that this man knew nothing about it, that he was up on that mountain and he was uh, picking wildflowers for his wife when he discovered the body. And, uh, you know, even with what we know now, it appears that this man had really had uh, no idea that there was a body up there and that it was just an absolute random discovery. So he was never considered to be uh, a suspect in the crime, I guess, for lack of a better word. Uh, no, he was uh, not. I think that he uh, actually agreed very quickly to be questioned. So he could be dismissed as um, any kind of suspect. And um, he was a respectable man who actually went on to be an elected official. Oh, wow. So um, it, it, it really uh, is pretty much certain that he had nothing to do with any of this. It was just an absolute accident that he kind of stumbled on this woman's body. Right. They've they've discovered this body. Todd, take us through a little bit about, do you know anything about after they found the Harlan County Jane Doe uh, in 1969, what did they do with her remains? Was there any attempt at that point to try to identify this woman? Did the technology in rural Kentucky at that point even exist to start to determine who this woman was well you know and she was buried and that's what they would normally do they did the best they could with the technology they had there was no state database there was no state medical examiner uh it was starting to form at the time but this case actually predates the state medical examiner system in kentucky so it was very isolated i think they did everything that they could knew how to do at the time and then i think she just sort of fell into an urban legend, sort of like the tent girl. And so kind of at that point, it was just like, let's be as respectful as we can. Let's give her a burial. And so the town kind of just came together and buried her with a, a Jane Doe grave marker, right? That's my understanding. Okay. Let's, let's move forward to the, guy, to the point where you guys became involved in the case. Darla, we know how you came uh, became involved in it. Todd, you said you spoke with Darla and learned about it through her book, but Todd, you have a lot of experience in investigating missing persons 
cases, correct? Well, since Tent Girl in 1998, since her identification after 10 years, you know, I officially and unofficially started working on a lot of other cases. I would hear from local officials, state officials, and uh, through various various volunteer network, uh, Doe Network, uh, Project Eden, where we do the forensic art, we would do the best we could to actually restore these people back to their families. Ultimately, that got the attention of the Department of Justice around the time that I was interviewing Darla for my radio show. I was doing a radio show that I thought, we need to share these conversations. Mm-hmm. Nobody would ever believe it. And, uh, and Darla was one of them. Uh, had the opportunity then to create the national database as a working group member. And now that's what I do. Besides what you saw in the dead unknown, a lot of these st- old cases still really get my personal attention. But, you know, the day to day is now with the Department of Justice. It amazes me that, that you do this for a living because it's so, uh, to me, compelling um, that you are out there every day just trying to help identify. And if you guys watch the dead unknown, they interview some other families of missing persons cases, and some of them were found, but some of them weren't found. And you realize, well, you don't realize, but you hear how absolutely devastating it is for these people to have no knowledge of what happened to their loved ones. And I've said this before, I think the absolute worst ending to someone's life would just to to be having no knowledge of what happened to them. Death is hard, but a disappearance and not knowing what happened to your loved one, I can't imagine that situation. To me, that would just be absolutely devastating, and I don't know how you move forward after that. And Todd, you've had a lot of these conversations with these families. So when you came upon the case of Harlan County, Jane Doe, what was the first part in identifying the remains that were still there from 1969? Well, you see, that was that was a longer process than people think. You know, after everybody saw the dead unknown, and I'd, I'd been approached for television many times over the years, and this was just, you know, we want a, an Emmy and two Peabody's for that documentary. And mm-hmm. of course, Hollywood called immediately and said, let's do this for a series. What they didn't realize was that was filmed over a period of two years. And the entire story was about a period of eight years for me and even longer than that for Darla. She spent half a lifetime on it. Without yeah. each of those pieces of the puzzle, we couldn't have completed it. So to to do this in a full series where we would take somebody from grave back to the family and do several episodes a year, it's just not possible to do that. I mean, it worked out really well. Uh, the documentary film people came in at just the right time to catch everything and collect everything together and interview people like Darla that started on that end and we worked it on this end. It was just the right time and it's just not something that we could replicate. It's just not something we could do for a full series uh, with a guaranteed resolution at the end with a family member that's going to talk to you. Yeah. Hollywood doesn't understand real life. And I don't think, you know, it would be, it would be amazing if you guys could step in and help a new family every week. But it's just like you said, it's, it's such a time consuming process to find out. Day job for that, you know, Mm -hmm. I mean, ultimately if I did a series like that, 
you know, I couldn't maintain the job that I do now. So, right. and I know it's a foolhardy quest to, to take something on and then it be canceled. You know, I worked with two others, worked with two scripted series. One was uh, The Forgotten with Christian Slater. It's on ABC. Oh, and wow. I'll share the links with you so you can see that. That went one season nearly and it was canceled. Yeah. That was with Jerry Bruckheimer. And I did another series with Dick Wolf. And we did a pilot and it was never aired. They didn't pick wow. it up. So, and we were sure, these are sure things. If I'd quit a job for those two projects, I'd be out of a job. So, and I want to do the thing that I know is going to help the most people. When I feel like TV finds the right formula and I can help the most people with it, I may do that. But uh, mm-hmm. I'll know it when I see it. We, know it. You know what's, ama- you yeah, know what's amazing, It's funny though? that you say that, yeah. It's amazing because the whole crime series is becoming very popular. And, like, there's a podcast, I don't know if you've heard of it, it's called Up and Vanished. And basically that guy was a filmmaker and he just wanted to investigate a cold case and he actually put it in the forefront, got a resolution from it. So I think it's really cool, like, people like you that are stepping forward that just had this interest in finding this kind of stuff and are like, hey, I want to do my research, but I also want to help these families find their thing. And you do, you you yield results and that's incredible. Well, yeah, and, yeah. and the timing was perfect with this. When uh, right. Center for Investigative Reporting didn't intend to do Mountain Jane Doe, they wanted to follow uh, us along on something really interesting. And the exhumation was coming up. Darla was in place. And so I felt like an executive producer. I thought, I've got this person. I know we're going to do that. I know when we're going to do it. I know she's articulate. She was going to be a perfect opposite. I had Tent Girl. She had Mountain Jane Doe. We had the perfect ensemble there to do that. It just presented itself now to do that 20 times for a series. Mm-hmm. And I hear from producers a dime a dozen. Uh, you know, yes, they are. To, to a week, maybe more. And I tell them the perils of, you know, I love your idea, which is not a new idea. Until we find the right formula, um, I just don't see that we're going to be able to solve this case right before your very eyes. Well, that's... That- that's, that is that preaching also, to the choir. <laughs> that's, what also, that's what also was great about uh, watching this, the, the Dead Unknown, because you could see the passion with both you and Darla. You could see that this is honestly what you, you know, you, you see it. You feel, And that's what struck me the most about watching Darla's interview was like, you know, this woman is, she wants to find out who this woman is. She wants to get to the bottom of this. And that passion, that fire is, is what caught me. And she did the book and, you know, and I knew the story of how she put her book together and I wanted somebody else to see what really she did behind the scenes because my behind the scenes has been shown so many times in so many stories and articles, but Darla's story, what she really did to contribute to this, nobody had really ever seen before. I knew it where I'd interviewed her on my tiny little radio show and I thought, you know what, it's time for people to see that a lot of people play into these. You know, I get more credit than I deserve on a lot of these cases when it just maybe I was just the coordinator that helped, um, you know, keep the circus moving. But uh, there was a lot of people performing their jobs and their passion, just yeah. like Darla was. It's true. And Darla, you by profession are you on a funeral home, right? Um, that is correct. Um, I have uh, been owner or part owner in Mount Funeral Home uh, since 1989. So this will be my 30th year. So and so. I, I, yeah, when you're when you're in a uh, a profession like funeral director, you see people go through the death process every day. But I think when you come 
When you come at it from this direction, it's totally different because you're working from the dead person backwards, trying to, to find out who this person is and why they're there and then attempting to find the family. It's a totally backwards process, but still you can tell, like, like Shay said, that with both of you, the heart and the passion and the fire is there. And, and that's what struck both of us as we were watching this documentary, that it's, it was amazing to see the two of you connecting on that level and then that working for the greater good of the case. So you guys have identified this case. You think you have found where Harlan Jane Doe is buried, correct? Yes, we thought. <laughs> so... Right. So you guys go to this mountainside cemetery and they start the exhumation process. So number one, when you're working in a Jane or John Doe case where there's no family to be uh, identified, how do you get permission to exhume these bodies for further investigation? Well, in that case, the county coroner, uh, you know, secured a court order to do it. I've done it here in Overton County, where I live, um, usually it's just to get a court order for the purpose of identifying remains. It, it happens very frequent now. There was a day back in the tent girl, back just before Harlan County, Jane Doe, well, 1998, you would have to have a compelling evidence to say, I want to exhume this body because I think it's this person and I have mm -hmm. a family here that agree with me. That's what we did with tent girl. So now, exhumed somebody for the purpose of DNA, even though we thought we knew we might have a connection already, we, it didn't matter because if we had DNA, we could put it into CODIS. So we weren't, we weren't tapping a dry whale. Right. And we learned things along the way. Like you saw a scene where I was talking about a marker and how they could get misplaced. Yes. I already knew we dug up the wrong grave then, but I couldn't tell the production crew at that right. point. So I was trying to very, you know, like these, there are things <laughs> that come up during the process. So I think we were trying to explain it even when the crew didn't know exactly what we were explaining. And Darla did the same thing. You know, we, we, we did the best we could to uh, give a reality without giving away things that we might have known. And you go back to a part of it has to do with the remoteness of this location. And I think mm -hmm. as you're walking into the scene where they are attempting to exhume the body. Todd, you make reference to, oh, I think there's also a 1966 unidentified male who might be buried in this area, correct? And that was something that Darla had mentioned to me. Now, there, there is a difference. Now, there, uh, there are unidentified graves and the graves of the unknown. Mm -hmm. So there are, there are two different things. So I'm not really sure if we've ever figured through that or not if there are actually a John Doe or graves that weren't permanently marked, like we know that somebody was buried here, but we're not really sure the marker's been moved. We don't really know who it is. It might not have been a John Doe, but then again, there could have been. And I've not right. talked to Darla about this in a long time. So I need to let her talk. <laughs> so <laughs> Darla, when you're talking about these people who, and you know it better than any of us, the area of, uh, you know, 
the remote Kentucky area that you guys deal with, how easily would it be for some of these old graves? I, I hate to say it, but mismarked or misidentified when you're talking about the area and uh, and the way that these these stones were marked when some of these people were buried there first. Well, um, first of all, as far as this region, um, very early on, before there were stone cutters and, and the, the granite markers, there were what we call field stones. So basically, mm -hmm. a simple stone is put in place. And many of Many uh, graves in that particular cemetery are just simply field stones. And then you have people who were buried and uh, no permanent marker set up. And funeral homes back then and still today make these little metal stakes with very basic information. And they are poked into the ground. And it is so easy for these mm -hmm. markers. To, uh, a very heavy rain can pop these markers out of the ground. Uh, people caring, people mowing for the cemeteries, uh, they can be uh, pulled up from the ground and very, uh, very good intention put in the absolute wrong place. Yeah. And, uh, you know, that seems to be the case with this particular grave. There was no malintent, I do not believe. I think it was just, it was just uh, an easily, uh, an easily movable marker that was pulled out and popped into the wrong place by it. And I can tell you guys from my own uh, experience, I have literally been in the woods behind my childhood home and found these old family cemeteries that have these graves that are marked with nothing more but a field stone. But you don't even realize they're there some of the times. And then some of these old, like you said, the little stake markers and, you know, the people who come in and, and do their best to care for these old cemeteries, but not really thinking about when they pull these markers up that it, when they put them back, they could be totally in the wrong place. And, and this area and this time frame. That was absolutely not unheard of. You can go to a lot of cemeteries in this area. Shay, I took you to my family cemetery in Mingo County, West Virginia, correct? Yeah, that's why when you guys were in the documentary, when you know they kind of were giving the overview of the cemeteries, I was like, wow, Annie, that looks a lot like your family plot because it's the same kind of thing, just on a mountainside. You know, All my dead and relatives, baby. Buried on a mountain, and if you didn't have a permanent marker there, you would lose. And there were some of some of them. I have people in my family cemetery who, literally, the mountainsides have caved in. There were those the little stake markers over the hill mm -hmm. with nothing left. You have no idea where that grave was, and you have no idea how easy it would be to lose track of something like that until you see it with your own eyes. It's easy done. You know, my family's buried on a mountainside cemetery, more of a hillside cemetery, but uh, it's, it's just so easy. And I've had people that I know that said, hey, I know where some John and Jane Doe's are buried. And you go with them and it's like, no, those are proper burials, right. historic burials. Those are properly marked. They're not John. And get them to understand, those are not John and Jane Doe's. I don't know who they are. 
but this is right. a proper historical burial. They just didn't have the technology. It's fieldstone, just like Darla right. said earlier. It, it's a proper burial. They're not John and Jane Doe's. So without going too much into details of the documentary, um, the first exhumation process did not go as you guys had originally hoped. Let's flash forward to when the first, how long was it from that first exhumation process until you actually found the remains of the Mountain Jane Doe? Was it not a year, darling? It was, uh, yes, it was approximately one year. So and that's, how many exhumations? I think they dug up half of Harlan. Was, was, there was probably several, <laughs> was there four or five? Uh, different yes, spots yes. and we didn't have an opportunity to go back to finish the film with that that was just something that kind of had to be done they did it on their own and we knew about it later um, you know because I, I think local officials felt embarrassed at first but they really had right. no need to it looked really good in the documentary I think they were very relieved when they mm-hmm. saw the documentary film that they weren't painted in a bad light, these things are normal. And I did everything I could to normalize a thing like this as far as these graves are mismarked. That's not right. unusual. That's not your fault. Uh, Darla talked to the wrong grave for 20 years and she's not embarrassed. <laughs> not at all. You know? Darla, you make a reference that I found very interesting in the documentary. And this kind of goes back to, um, you know, you're author of a book that has to do with some of the paranormal stories there, which, you know, Shay and I are, are all about. So you make the reference of, if you want to get the dead to talk, you have a glass of wine with them. And so you guys actually did that around the area that you thought Jane Doe was buried in, right? Uh, yes, that is correct. Um, my friend was the one who, who told me that she had heard of this. And, you know, at that point, yeah, I was getting close to my 20-year mark searching for the identity of this woman. And, um, and, you know, I'm open to all things, and I absolutely love the paranormal and the ghosts because I, I do write about that. And, uh, sure, uh, one warm summer evening, we gave it, we gave it a try. And, actually, um, it was just... A few weeks later, I was contacted by Todd saying, you know, there's probably going to be an exhumation soon. And then just a couple months later, she was exhumed. And uh, during that process, that glass of wine was still there. It had evaporated some, and and it looked the same, but it was there. And so um, very fancifully, I'd like to think, well, you know, perhaps, you know, you never know. I was you willing just, to try anything at that point. It's very symbolic, and there's been so many things like that in the process over the years with Tent Girl, Harlan County Jane Doe. There's been so many things that were symbolic that come up like that, and we had an opportunity to be there when it happened. So I like to think that maybe Darla, I was doing something on one side, and she was working the other side, and somehow we were still same page just a different side of it listen we're we're if you've spent any time in this area southern kentucky southern west virginia you know that we're kind of a superstitious people and so when you start pulling things like that out we believe in it and you know (laughs) shay and i doing our paranormal investigating as long as we've done it we've done crazier things than sharing a glass of wine with a spirit so if that's what it took to get somebody to talk then I'm all for it. 
And, you know, in the day to day, you know, the, the paranormal is not something that, you know, in, in science that I can cross into and involve in a regular normal case. But this case already had it steeped into it. Uh, it was already an urban legend. There was nothing I could do about that. That was it was already a fact. There was ghost stories written about her. Same with Tent Girl. It was the same thing. And you know what? You just uh, you don't change what you don't understand. You don't know for sure. You just go with it. That was part of her identity was those ghost stories around her. The stories that were told, whether they were true or not, whether they're really supernatural or not, they were part of who she is. We couldn't take that away. You know, and it's part of the history of that area, too. Yeah. Hillbilly history. It was hillbilly history, which a lot of the stuff around this area is hillbilly history. That hillbilly history usually comes from a fact somewhere. There's yeah. some fact, there's some historical fact that it links back to and just over time loses some of the factual um, parts, but retains that story. So you guys finally are able to find the remains of the Mountain Jane Doe, who was murdered in 1969. Um, So once her remains were found and exhumed, what steps were taken to identify her? That's where it went back to science. So it did go to the lab. You know, I worked for NamUs during the day, and I'm keeping this strictly dead unknown for the most part, but the day job is NamUs, and they did work with the DNA lab, and there was a connection made to a family member that you'll see if you watch a documentary film. That's uh, a connection that was made, and it was just a process. It takes time, and, you know, we waited it out, and I've learned to be very patient. I'm not a patient person, and the six weeks we waited for Tent Girl was a long time. Now it's mm-hmm. it's longer because there's more cases, but I have so many now. I've learned to be patient because there's always something going on. I can keep distracted, but it's uh, it is. It was a DNA process. Uh, we we had somebody that had come forward that thought that could be their mother, and we just had to prove yes or no. In the meantime, Darla got to meet that person, and that's also in the documentary film. Mm-hmm. And so when you guys were doing this, so the the documentary was filmed in 2015. I think it was produced and aired in 2016. Did you guys ever meet any opposition from people in the area who would say, you know, it's better to leave the dead alone. Let them let them lie. It's not necessary to find out who these people are. Just let the dead rest in peace. Or was everybody all for it and said, yeah, find out who she is? I'll let Darla go first. Okay, yeah, from from the local standpoint, um, I met, as far as just the public, no, I met no opposition. Everyone that I've ever spoken to who uh, remembers the case or who learns of the case later, they were absolutely all for it. Um, no opposition there. Um, everyone was just very supportive and always said, you know, as technology uh, comes into play and advances, uh, you know, you need to do everything that you possibly can, if, if, if you can, to solve this. So, no, uh, no one say mm-hmm. let the dead lie or anything like that. Everyone said find out who this is. And by now it's accepted. By the time, you know, this is this is early one of the first cases that I worked on in an exhumation was around 2000, and 
it was a little shocking at the time. That's why you had to have compelling evidence. Like, I think this person is this person and uh, they're all on board. So, you know, opening a grave was disturbing the dead. I think mm-hmm. it become more accepted. You know, when Tent Girl was identified, it did work. And then there was another and another. Uh, finally, the process as a science was necessary. And I could talk about like, you know, the first grave that I opened was a local case. It wasn't a Jane Doe, but it was a murder-suicide. There was there wasn't mm-hmm. sure. I worried the night before. I thought, can I do this and can I live with it? You know, what well, what curse will this bring to me to cause this to happen? I'm, I'm going to open her grave and I hope she's happy with it. But I realized it was something that had to be done. And if it were me, I would hope that somebody would do the same for me. And she was put back. You know, she was put back when science was took care of, um, back in her resting place. You know, we did what we had to do to uh, correct a wrong. When I think you're talking about situations like this, and again, when you watch the series, The Dead Unknown, you see family members of people who are missing or the family members of people who were missing for years. And it turns out that investigators had the evidence right underneath their noses, but were never able to connect the stories together or these missing persons files with these unidentified bodies, which I can't imagine some of these stories that I've heard that, you know, their loved ones were missing for years. And as it turns out, their bodies were found, some of them in the same town or towns, you know, that were close by and they went for years and had no idea what happened to their loved ones. And I know if I had someone in my family who had gone missing, I would say exhume every grave that you thought would be possible until you find this person. Even if it meant digging up my own family members and it turned out not to be them, that's okay. It was more important back in the day to give somebody a proper burial, to be honest with you. Sometimes the thought of, we'll never find who this person is. You know, they gave up long ago on Mountain Jane Doe thinking, but you know what? We did what we had to do. We gave her a proper burial and somebody leaves flowers from time to time. They showed Um, her respect. Yeah. And that was, and even in the documentary, you guys talk about her, her grave was decorated and they took some of those um the decorations down and kind of put them in the evidence did you ever find out who it was that was decorating her grave or was it someone just showing respect for someone they didn't know um i think that mountain jane though was um i think because she belonged to no one i think she sort of belonged to everyone and i think that the people of harlem felt responsible for her Mm-hmm. Um, even though in reality she wasn't she wasn't theirs and that they gave her back. But but during the years, it was like, you know, here is this young girl. Uh, we have to do something. And, yeah. uh, you know, during the 70s and 80s, there was not a lot to do but show your respect. Right. And you're talking about Southern culture here. Yeah, you're talking about Southern culture here, too, where, you know, even during, and I hate to say it, even during current times, they um, abided by, yeah. The passage was more important than anything else because she had already left this world. And, you know, they didn't have anything else they could do. There was no DNA at the time. So what what else could they do but send her bitter farewell off to heaven? Yeah, they could offer her nothing more than, than passage and respect 
at that point. They gave even her what the, her family would have gave her had they known. That's exactly, exactly. That's the place of the family. And that's the best they could do at the time. So when her remains were exhumed and then from the little bit that they knew from when her body was found in night's cause of death was stabbing, correct? Yes. So they exhume her remains. What element do you think broke that case open? I, I think having the family member that had come forward, she'd actually talked to a member of, of the staff at NamUs, so she knew. We had somebody in mind that we think it, thought it could have been at the time. The family member, we were a little surprised because if you'll see in the dead unknown, you're going to see that family member directly interfacing with, with those remains. And that don't often happen, but I think she needed to see her mother about it. You know, she had the DNA, she knew it was her, and she wanted to see her remains. And uh, we let her. I don't want to give away too much about the docuseries. And even if we talk about who Harlan County Jane Doe was, I encourage you guys to watch this because it absolutely shows not the amount of time, because like you said, this took place over the course of a couple of years, but it shows some of the process very concisely. So after the remains were exhumed and her DNA was put into, after her DNA was put into the national database, you were able to identify your Harlan County Jane Doe. Yes. And so what, what would you like to say about her on air? We know her name. Mm-hmm. And her daughter came forward and said she thought this was her mother who went missing when she was a child, a young child. Well, and I won't tell her part of the story so much because people really do need to see this. I, we don't get a commission for anybody watching it. so And you can watch it free. You don't have to watch it on Amazon. You can Google it, uh, The Dead Unknown. So you can watch it free. I think it's important that people see the story so they'll know the story and they'll understand mm-hmm. what we went through what she went through, what we all went through to put that together. And we were so fortunate that circumstances allowed us to capture what we did. It was really a miracle. It's one of those things that just started falling into place and you got to pick the right person for the right place and point it. That one can say that. And there's a family member. She's willing to talk. You know, she could have claimed it and said, I don't want to talk to anybody. And we wouldn't have had that final chapter. We got to do right. a funeral at Darla's funeral home which was wonderful. Uh, one of the scores that you'll hear in the music was recorded right there in the chapel at Darla's funeral home there in Harlan County uh, with Ruby Friedman. It was done right there. I, and so, Darla, you had the opportunity to meet with Harlan County Jane Doe's daughter. When all of this came to fruition, what was your feeling? Was it mourning for this person that you never knew? What did you feel when you met her daughter? Um, I think at first, um, I think at first I was in shock. Um, and it was really surreal for me to even think that, you know, I am actually meeting a family member and this is this person's name. I, I had relief when I learned of this, um, of this young woman, I, I did have grief. I guess I had it all. I felt like, um, that was a, a huge weight off of my shoulder. I felt responsible in a way um, for, for keeping this going. I just had 
probably every emotion that you can probably imagine. It's all, it, I would imagine it would be almost like burying one of your own family members. Oh, yes. Um, you know, I, I guess really the hardest part for me during this whole thing was basically having to give her to who she really belonged to because for almost 20 years, I considered her mine. When I did give her away, I gave her back to who she belonged to. Um, in a way, the family member said, you know, I'll share her. You don't have to totally give her away. You know, she's mm -hmm. a part of you, too. And she was exactly right. Um, I, I consider her my family. Exactly. I know exactly what she means. But we got to keep our chain, though. Tent Girl stayed where she had been buried. Her family put her back um, because she was central to all of us and they allowed me to be part of some of the planning and um, the final good family and in a strange way darla's family uh she really is I, and we just shared a unique experience that so few people get to share so she's family she's one year older than me <laughs> so she's like a big sister i had to say that <laughs> not quite i'm thinking more like 11 um two weeks <laughs> okay <laughs> We'll, we'll let her have that. <laughs> you let her have it. You guys, that's, that's, so I have to say, I'm not going to say the name of Harlan County Jane Doe because I want people to watch this series, but I have to tell you that her last name is also a last name that's very prominent in my family. Is there a possibility that I could have been related to this woman? And, you know, you start thinking about things of that nature. And so when you're talking about the Name Us Project and all the other missing persons and CODIS and, and all this stuff that exists now with forensics in the United States, it makes me personally want to step out and be a part of um, all these programs that, you know, you can do your DNA swab. And if mm -hmm. there's a chance, one in a million that you can be related to one of these people, that's still a chance. It's going to improve. You know, it's going to change. It's going to get better. Uh, right now, the genealogy DNA is hit or miss, you know, because the DNA, the databases are, it's not connected directly to CODIS unless uh, John or Jane Doe is put in particularly. Uh, the best thing to do right now for John and Jane Doe's is to go through CODIS because some have not been put in CODIS yet. Some have not been exhumed. For people like you that have a history that could be connected, definitely give your DNA sample to Ancestry. Um, that's that's awesome idea. Yeah. Um, like on some of the adoption databases and the um, yeah. people that donate eggs, uh, mm -hmm. people that donate sperm, honestly, it could create, uh, there's just a lot of legal things that need to be smoothed out too right now. You know, there's the dead and then there's the people that have made lies and don't know. Right. Maybe they don't need to know some things, but uh Technology is going to take us forward, so I, I think overall it's going to be positive, but the ramifications are there. There are yeah. going to be some things that uh, are going to come up. There are, and it, and it brings, um, I was watching the news the other day, I think it was on the Today Show, about this woman who had submitted her uh, the, the swab to Ancestry, her DNA swab, and found out, unbeknownst to her, that she was adopted. And both of her yeah. parents, who she thought were her biological parents, were actually not her parents. And this woman says, 
Don't give them your DNA unless you are 100% ready to know the absolute truth behind your heritage. And as important as I think it is, I, I, you know, I guess that's also a warning that you have to give people. You may find things that you didn't necessarily want to know. And that's like if somebody donated an egg and really truly did not need to have a connection to that infant. They were giving it away to a family to raise. That's going to bring up a whole new scenario that maybe they would have been better off if they had not because they do have a family. Your family is not always a family of blood. It's a family of common connections. And I'm, I'm not even kidding when I say I feel like Darla's a relative. She we shared something and experience that so few people do. Right. I know exactly what she went through. And if DNA ancestry says she's my sister, I'm going to say, no, she's not. She's too old. (laughs) (laughs) That's hilarious. So we're going to wrap. I got to wrap up in just the next couple of minutes. Uh, The last thing I want to know is since the documentary has aired has anyone come forward with any information regarding Jane Doe's disappearance or her murder? I think bits and pieces have went through the Kentucky State Police. I'm just not sure there was enough to actually really do anything with. And it's really not still too late. I think every time we do a show like this, somebody's going to hear. We might hear something. I'm sure Darla's heard a lot of local uh, rumor that goes through, whether it's true or not. It's still being. It's still an open case. And again, I think that's why. Yeah, that's why I say when we do shows like this, you know, uh, if anyone has any tips, if you're unsure uh, of of what case we're referring to, please get online, watch the documentary, The Dead Unknown. Listen to this case. If you have any tips or information, you can reach out to me. You can reach out to Shay, Todd, or Darla, and we can put you in the right direction uh, to give these tips. You never know. It's never too late to reach out with any type of information like this. So we've got to wrap up. Todd, Darla, thank you so much for being part of Serial Spirits. It's been an absolute pleasure. And uh, I hope we can talk more in the future about other cases. Welcome back. That was our exclusive interview with Todd Matthews and Darla Jackson of The Dead Unknown. And wow, what what an incredible incredible thing that these people do right weebs it's like i said in the intro you realize when you talk to these people in real life how passionate that they they are about what they do and todd has made this his life work you know after working on tent girl and some of these other cases and we're absolutely going to have todd back on to talk about some other cases he and i have talked since that interview and the work that these people do uh, with the name us project It's just absolutely amazing, and it gives hope for everyone who's out there who ever lost a family member in that fashion. Incredible feat, and I'm so glad we will have Todd back on, and uh, most definitely because he's a very interesting character. Weebs, you got anything else you'd like to say this week for Serial Spirits? No, thanks for tuning in. You guys stay tuned again in two weeks when we have another really devious episode coming up that it's going to get real sketch it's going to get real sketch 
Thank you for listening to another episode of the Serial Spirits Podcast. Follow us on all your social media apps, facebook.com forward slash Serial Spirits, on Twitter at Serial Spirits. Listen to us on all podcasting platforms, iTunes, Stitcher, Spotify, iHeartRadio, wherever you subscribe. Follow us on our mothership at paranormalwarehouse.com. Until next time, guys, be aware and be safe. Thank you.